name's Eileen Townsend, and I'm the editor of the Northern Logger and Timber Processor, a trade magazine for the forest products industry that's based out of the Adirondack Mountains in New York State. Hi there, Northern Logger listeners. This is Eileen, and before we get started today, I just wanted to mention two important, exciting events that are going on as a part of the Northeastern Loggers Association. Uh, which is, for those of you that don't know, the trade organization that publishes the Northern Logger magazine and that also puts out this podcast. And those are our annual loggers expos. So we have two loggers equipment expos this year. The first, uh, our Loggers Plus Expo, is held in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, and that's going to be April 3rd and 4th, 2020, at the Bloomsburg Fairgrounds. And that's a great show. Uh, It takes place in a part of Pennsylvania that has a big forest products industry. And if you've never been to Bloomsburg for our Loggers Plus Expo, this is definitely the year to come. We're going to have some really exciting exhibits there and events, and it'll be like a big reunion for the Pennsylvania forest products industry and beyond. We also have our Vermont Loggers Expo, which is a big show that features usually between 200 and 250 exhibiting companies. It attracts anywhere between 5,000 to 7,000 industry visitors uh, who are in the market for equipment and lots of other things. And that is going to be held in 2020 uh, on May 15th and 16th. And that is at the Champlain Valley Exposition right outside of Burlington, Vermont. So I'm going to be there and uh, we are going to be having a really great expo this year and hope that all of the listeners to this podcast who are located anywhere in the Northeast will be able to make it out. I'd love to see you there. So this month on our podcast, we spoke with Eric Kingsley, who is a frequent contributor to the Northern Logger magazine and who wrote our January story about industry trends to look out for in 2020. Kingsley is a consultant and he talks to people on a daily basis about what's going on in the industry, what trends to watch for, emerging markets, what's going on with trade, Everything that you might want to know from a you know bird's eye perspective about the forest products industry, Eric is in touch with, and he did a great job on our January story, and we followed up with him to talk through what he wrote about. So, so without further ado, Eric Kingsley of Innovative Natural Resource Solutions. Okay, cool. Well, so I, I think the first thing to talk about is pulp and paper. And there's been obviously a lot of talk about the comeback of pulp and paper in Maine. So can you say a little bit more about what that actually looks like right now? Yeah. So starting in 2014 and really starting before then, the pulp and paper industry in in Maine and across the region was in a protracted decline with really no bottom in sight. That has changed 180 degrees. 
every remaining mill in the region has made significant investments in continued operation and uh, in some cases expansion or restart of capacity, including what's the big news is this year, uh, or this past year, uh, the Nine Dragons purchase and restart of the mill in Old Town expected to use uh, an awful lot of softwood and it's formerly a hardwood mill, so switching to softwood, so that'll be a fantastic market. But really, overall, we've seen going from some real concerns about where pulp and paper was headed to some absolute optimism as companies are reinvesting in their mills, uh, new markets are appearing. And the, a, a big piece of this is the entire region has diversified away from exclusively printing and writing paper or nearly exclusively printing and writing paper. So we used to make uh, the, the magazine, the, the paper used in probably in Northern Logger Magazine, in annual reports, in Time and Newsweek and Sports Illustrated. As the delivery of information has changed, fewer and fewer people are receiving their information uh, in the mail in a, in a weekly or monthly magazine. Obviously that means less paper used. So we're now seeing some real moves toward uh, packaging, especially food grade packaging, towards some uh, specialty materials made for some very unique uh, pur purposes and customers, and uh, sort of a diversification of grades away from just printing and writing paper. So that's what's leading to this renewed uh, optimism or renewed market, really. Just a note for everybody, if they want to read more about that, you did write a great article about that in October of 2019. You can look back at a more in-depth uh, kind of take on what's happening with pulp and paper in that issue of the Northern Logger. Um, and so you also wrote about sawmills and everything that's happening with China and the hardwood mills um, and you know just where, where that is right now. Uh, and, and also what's going on with softwood mills. Yeah, so certainly on the hardwood side, it's been a, an incredibly challenging year. China, for both lumber and logs, represented a, the major export market and probably an unhealthy large share of the overall market of, of hardwoods. With the trade war over the past year, that market has suffered because of tariffs and other reasons. We, at this point, at this recording, it's actually a little up in the air, but there's been some movement toward resolution of trade war with, between the U.S. and China. And in that may be in a renewed market for hardwoods. Uh, the, it looks like uh, China is committing to buy uh, significant volumes of hardwood in terms of what I've, I've seen reported, but the details aren't out yet. And it's unclear what the future tariff situation is. However, I think it's it's a little naive to think that, so we, we had a large Chinese market, we had a trade war that got in the way of that market. And I don't think it all simply reappears, nor should we want it to reappear if you're uh, in the hardwood industry just as it was before. I think what we've learned is being 
exposed to one country is has some dangers and challenges we need to be wary of. It's sort of putting too many eggs in one basket. And uh, separately over this past year, it's silly to think that uh, Chinese manufacturers didn't go somewhere and find uh, other products, their customers perhaps developing other tastes and their manufacturers finding other suppliers. So even to the extent that the trade wars resolving itself, uh, I, I think there's still some long-term concern and some long-term strategic opportunities in the next year or so for, for hardwood sawmills. You also wrote about softwood and, and how that's affected by the housing market. So uh, if you could say more about that. Yeah, so the, the softwood market, particularly the spruce fir market, the, the structural lumber market, the two by fours, two by eights, two by sixes that uh, are used primarily as the bones of houses, that is historically tied and tied very closely to, to the housing market. Housing market has been on a slow and very bumpy uptick. It's, you know, we have up months and down months, but the overall trend line has been up since bottoming out in the Great Recession, uh, 2008 to 2010, in that time period. Uh, we've been on a, on a track upward and during that time, softwood mills have been putting an awful lot of money into automation. So they've cut costs, uh, they've cut uh, labor costs and done everything they can to control their costs. The mills in this region, the spruce fir mills certainly are incredibly automated and really well positioned for the future. That said, uh, we all know we've had a a decade plus of economic growth. The periods of economic growth don't last forever. And to the extent that housing has some bumps going forward, that will certainly affect the region's softwood markets. Certainly. So then you also wrote about something that we've covered pretty thoroughly in our magazine in the past year uh, because of how it's been developing. But uh, the state of biomass, everybody's everybody's least favorite conversation topic, I think. Yeah, so I'm a huge fan of biomass markets for all sorts of reasons, uh, for forestry and economic development reasons. But unfortunately, the biomass market exists in the electricity market almost exclusively. There are certainly some biomass users that are making combined heat and power and using it on site. There's some schools, hospitals, others that are just doing heating, those are separate. Probably 90 plus percent of the market in this region historically has been for really for biomass electricity. And biomass electricity competes head to head with natural gas, which has been cheap for, for the last decade. Um, on the renewable side, it competes with wind and solar, both of which have had declining capital costs for a while. And uh, of course, no one's paying a daily or monthly fuel bill for wind or sun. So it faces some very real, very hard, challenging economics going forward. The, the reality is that without some level of public support, uh, biomass 
often has some very real challenges operating. We've seen we've seen that in New Hampshire, where uh, two years in a row, legislature approved the level of public support, and the governor ended up vetoing that. We're now seeing some of those plans close. Uh, we've seen other approaches in in other states, but biomass is a is a challenged market. It has been for a few years, and there's no reason to think that things are about to get better. Definitely continue to look at that situation because, uh, yeah, it's, it's not. It doesn't seem like there's really that much good news coming from the biomass energy sector. There isn't. I would say that there are there are some opportunities for very small scale. I'm talking hundreds to thousands to a a few tens of thousands tons of, of market for for heating uses. Biomass heating actually competes very well against uh, oil, which in many states is the, is the um, primary heating source. In, for example, in Maine, where I live, uh, a, few, a few of the cities have access to natural gas, but most of the state doesn't. Uh, similar in New Hampshire and uh, parts of Vermont. So in that case, biomass heating at a, uh, a community scale level, a university, a, uh, a hospital, uh, a high school, that's a great competitive market. It can often operate without any level of subsidy. And while it's not a huge market, it does provide a, a, a local market for some wood. And so um, moving on to logging, you touched on a couple of issues that are not going to be anything particularly new for our readers and listeners. But uh, you, you wrote about the aging workforce and uh, the barrier of high equipment costs. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I'm now 51 years old. I started in the industry when I was 25. When I started at 25 and would go to uh, meetings with lots of loggers, the average age was of, a, of the logging workforce was five or six years in front of me. That was when I was 25. Now 51, the average age is probably five or six years in front of me. This is wholly unsustainable. We simply aren't seeing as many uh, as many people come into the workforce as is leaving. Some new work out of Maine, really taking a look at this issue, that uh, that ought to have every you know, everyone that relies on on wood harvesters. So any landowner, any forester, any mill, their eyes ought to pop. Uh, the the age of the logging workforce is quickly approaching retirement. I think we have a lot of leaders in the field that are probably near purchasing their last set of equipment. So assuming a, a five-year capitalization or a five-year uh, loan, they'll, you know, they'll be done in the next five, six, seven years. And, you know, it's, when a lot of these folks started in the industry, you were able to uh, buy a cable skidder and a chainsaw and go to work. That's not cheap, but it absolutely pales in comparison to what is required now, which is a million dollars plus for a, 
uh, grapple skitter, uh, you know, mechanized harvesting equipment. Um, it's it, the the barrier to entry is enormous, and the industry, all of us, you know, myself included, probably need to do some real thinking about what the business model looks like to make sure that the not only is the future workforce there, but the future workforce can afford to to enter into the marketplace. Absolutely. And another area that has a lot of workforce challenges is trucking, which which you wrote about. Yeah, um, trucking, not only forest products trucking, but all trucking, you know, we're, we're certainly not immune, uh, is challenged. The, nationally, we're, um, we're short truckers, and that is expected to continue to grow. At this point, if, uh, if every man, woman, and child in Burlington, Vermont, became a trucker overnight, we would still be short on a national level. So certainly for the forest products industry, we need to think about what our advantages are, how to recruit people. You know, uh, almost every, certainly every log trucker is home at night. They're, uh, they're not on the road for days and weeks at a time. That can be very attractive. Think on the, the mill side and, and probably on the logger side as well, we need to start increasing the importance of uh, truck turn time. So to the extent that we've got trucks waiting in line at mills, that's a truck not operating on the road. And as we're moving toward a increasingly constrained trucking workforce, we've, we, all of us as an industry, have to figure out how to best utilize that workforce. Moving on to carbon, you know, this is something that I think there's a lot of confusion about when people talk about these uh, carbon emissions schemes, like what what it even means uh, in a concrete way for the industry. So could you talk a little bit about that? I can talk a lot about that. It's a, but it's a, it's a bit of a Gordian knot. Uh, yeah. so, so the absolute truth is that our forests in this region have a lot of carbon. Trees uh, take uh, take carbon out of the atmosphere and turn it into something. They turn into into wood. That's true uh, standing, and that's true growing. So we have two separate things. We have a standing stock of carbon, and then to the extent the forest continues to grow or new forest replaces an old forest, you have uh, increased carbon uptake and more and more carbon coming out of the atmosphere. So I think that's where that's where everyone agrees. Everyone looks at that and says, yes, that's true. Where we go from there gets very complex. And that is, uh, there's, we're certainly moving to a time period when carbon emissions and likely negative emissions or storage and sequestration have a value. Uh, how can landowners be compensated for what they're doing? Do they have to change what they're doing? in order to be compensated for carbon, what's that worth? And if they do have to change what they're doing, I'm hearing increasing concerns among uh, forest products industry about what that means for wood flow, continued harvesting, uh, you know, just 
are they going to be able to harvest as much as traditionally? I would say uh, there are a few different carbon markets. Uh, there's, a, there's a generally referred to as the California Air Resources Board market. It's a 99-year deal. There have been some very high-profile uh, projects there. Most of those projects have been with, uh, with companies that following their payments have made some decision to, to decrease or at least defer timber harvesting. So when people say, okay, that happens on one landowner, no big deal, happens across the landscape, there's a big concern. There's also a number of emerging opportunities for a voluntary carbon market. And that would be a, a certain company wants to offset what they're doing and they go out and contract with, with landowners. We're seeing some of those have a lot more flexibility in terms of what that means and how that's compensated. So uh, for straight carbon markets, there's, um, you know, there's a lot of questions as to how that's going to proceed. Separately, uh, where I think carbon can be an enormous benefit to the entire industry is taking trees, harvesting them, turning them into long-lived products uh, really sequesters carbon. So um, my wooden bookcase in my office, a house, uh, a large cross-laminated timber building, all of those represent long-term car carbon storage because wood is about 50% carbon and sitting there, that's carbon that isn't in the atmosphere. So I think one of our real opportunities as we come to a carbon-constrained economy is to think about how wood-based building products can, or you know, wood-based products, period, not only building products, can be uh, can be recognized there. And importantly, what are the places where wood can displace uh, either cement or steel in construction? and potentially fossil fuels and some other uses and uh, really offset what are much higher carbon intensity products. Mm, that makes sense, definitely. Um, and so uh, going from that into your discussion of emerging markets, um, you know, this is something that you've written about for the magazine before and uh, you, you wrote about, you know, what, what's real in these emerging markets and what's kind of a pie in the sky uh, idea of what might come down the line. Yeah, so there's, there's always been and always will be emerging markets. The, the question is, how close to an actual market are they? So um, in my office, I see all sorts of people come in, talk to me. I go to their offices. They describe some amazing thing that can be done with wood. Uh, and I find out that it's been done once at a cost of hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars and everyone involved has the first name of doctor and wears a white lab coat. Uh, so, you know, those markets may well exist in the future. A lot of uh, some of the biofuels, some of the biochemical processes I've looked at that would accurately describe them. There's, there are some biofuel companies that have been in that sort of in that mode for about a decade that may be at the verge of moving out into early commercial uh, opportunities. 
We're seeing that uh, here in Maine with a company named Biofine that is looking at a, really a, eventually a, a diesel or home heating oil type product made out of wood. And then, then there's some products that are very real. So uh, again, here in Maine, there's a company GoLab that will be repurposing the, the former Madison, UPM Madison paper mill and using softwood chips to produce uh, an insulation much like the either blown in fiberglass insulation or the foam board insulation that we're all familiar with. But wood is a carbon preferential and, and they're telling me cheaper, uh, cheaper feedstock to use for insulation. There's huh. cross laminated timber. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, yeah, that is cool. Uh, cross laminated timber, absolutely a very real product. So cross laminated timber is, is a mass timber product, huge panels made out of made out of lumber that can be effectively mm, put together almost like Legos. Architects hate it when I say that, but uh, <laughs> really these <laughs> it turns out it's complicated, but it's simple. It, yeah. It's a simple concept where you end up with both wall panels and floor panels that can be you know 10 feet high and 40 feet long and they're simply uh, erected into place a lot of the, the manufacturing so uh, putting in uh, spots for windows and doors that happens back at the factory um, that, that's an emerging market i was just uh, just friday i was at a site at the former Pease Air Force Base in Newington, New Hampshire, so Seacoast, New Hampshire, where a cross-laminated timber uh, building is going up, it's under construction. Unfortunately, we have no CLT, no cross-laminated timber manufacturing in this region. So uh, the nearest facilities are in Quebec. Uh, I'm, I don't know where these panels came from, but this is a very real opportunity, and uh, there have been recent announcements in Arkansas, I think elsewhere in the Southeast, certainly uh, in the Pacific Northwest around such facilities. And Northeast is primed to host a cross-laminated timber manufacturer. We have the spruce fir lumber sawmills that really produce the raw material. And the Northeast, you know, with the exception of New York and Boston were almost exclusively mid-rise cities and cross-laminated timber can go up to about a dozen stories. That, that describes almost all buildings in Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, and uh, certainly describes an awful lot of buildings in the smaller cities or the suburbs of New York, Boston, probably describes most things in Connecticut and Rhode Island. So most of the buildings uh, that we make, either high rises or hotels or you know or, or new schools or, or anything like that, could easily be made from cross laminated timber. So then uh, you also wrote about something that I think is is interesting and probably deserves a a whole article in our in our magazine, which is um, abandoned mill sites and whether they're assets or liabilities or or both. Yeah, so it's pretty clear they're both. Uh, so the the region has a number of 
former manufacturing sites. In Maine, it's paper mills. In New Hampshire, it's now biomass facilities. You know, in, in upstate New York, there are a few biomass, uh, former biomass facilities. You know, it's easy to drive by these and think, well, you know, there used to be 500, 1,000, 1,200 jobs there, and now there's nothing but a rotting uh, hunk of metal. However, these sites have uh, usually significant uh, electricity infrastructure. They were a lot of times built with hydro facilities adjacent or attached to them. They always have good road access and often have good rail access. Um, they tend to be in communities that are welcoming of manufacturing, in fact, desirous of having manufacturing back. And oftentimes there's a, there's a workforce or uh, the, the desire of people to return to the place they grew up. Uh, so there's, a, there's an opportunity for a workforce there. It's, uh, it's absolutely a, a challenge to find the right fit, but all these spots uh, have, you know, have a tradition of supply around them. They have assets there. The, the big obvious success to point to is uh, Go Labs project in Madison, which is repurposing that mill. Hopefully that's the, the first of many because these sites are, uh, you know, they're, they're great industrial sites. They, they often have permits and, and all the things that one looks for when building a new, new industry. The, the challenge is to find these new industries that want to move in and use them in, uh, in a timely enough way that the assets still of value. Um, so, so that about covers it for our 2020 trends, and I think that's a very comprehensive look at what's what to look for and pay attention to in the coming year. Uh, any any closing remarks? So, I just want to say the way I get information. Obviously, I'm a consultant. I work in the industry. I'm talking to folks all the time. But one thing I I do is I reach out to 50 or 60 people toward the end of each year and ask them what they see uh, coming down the pike. And I'm eternally grateful for all the, the folks that take a few minutes to send me a few bullet points, because while I like to think I see a lot in the industry, and I'm sure you do too, we, we all know that the more people we talk to that are, that are out there, the, the better our insight. Uh, I really thank you not only for writing the article, but for taking the time to talk about it on the podcast. Yeah, hope you have a very happy new year. Thanks, you as well. Happy new year. Thank you, Eric, again, for taking the time to talk to us on the Northern Logger podcast. And to all our listeners out there, I hope that you are having a great new year so far. And if you haven't picked up your January copy of the Northern Logger magazine. There's lots of great content in there related to the new year and all the things that you should be thinking about as somebody in the industry going into 2020. So thanks for reading, happy new year, and talk to you next month.